Well, on this dark and dreary day, it is nice to have a warm greeting, isn't it? To be able to greet one another in the Lord and to know that we have that fellowship in Him. You know, there are many things that bring people together. Hobbies, interests, passions. But when the Lord brings us together, we can have so much in the way of differences as to who we are, and yet we have that commonality, we have that connection. And that is not a coincidence. That is the Holy Spirit bringing us together in a spirit of fellowship, and that's why we give you that time to enjoy that. That is just as important as everything else we do here. The connection in Jesus Christ, because I can't tell you how many times in just a conversation, five-minute conversation, I'm encouraged in the spirit. I'm sure you agree. Amen? This morning, I want to talk to you about hope. We need a little of that. I'm sure you would agree. If you read the news or listen to some Bible preachers, there's no more hope. I've actually heard some Christians say, there's no hope. And I think to myself, well, I know what they mean. There's no hope in the world or the world systems. There's certainly no hope in religion or politics. Uh, there's, there's, uh, it's debatable whether there's hope for our nation and our culture. It doesn't look like it, but there is There is hope in Jesus Christ, and that hope in him brings us to our subject today, which has everything to do with the hope that we have that Christ in this world is working not only on our behalf, but to restore this world. You you need to understand, uh, things are not out of control. They feel that way. They seem like that. When we compare our lives today to our lives even 10, 20 years ago, we come to this conclusion, now there's no hope. I'm not going to vote, there's no hope. Oh, I'm not going to bother, there's no hope. And many Christians are losing hope, not so much in Jesus Christ, but they're losing hope in Jesus Christ in this world. They kind of feel like he's just sort of abandoned the world. It's so wicked, it's so evil. We're like Sodom and Gomorrah, he's just abandoned us. And that's not true at all. In fact, I want to read you a scripture that came to mind today as we were worshiping. Uh, Sometimes God does that. I I love that when he does that. I've got sort of an idea of where the message is going. I've prepared my notes. But then during a time of worship, and I'm sure you've experienced this, God will speak to your spirit. And I remembered this scripture, and uh, it it was from Isaiah. And you're familiar with some of it because it was quoted in the New Testament, the the Gospel of Matthew. In Isaiah 40, we read, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. That is, the judgment had come upon Jerusalem. They had already received what it was at this point that, uh, that they were going to receive, and God wanted to bring comfort. And then we read this, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. If you're like me and you were born a a little while ago, you remember Godspell. Remember that? And I remember the song, Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord. It was one of those catchy tunes from that musical. That is the sentiment of the heart of John the Baptist as he begins to prepare the way for Jesus' first coming. But I want you to look a little further. The voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. And 
The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So that is hope that Isaiah offers us that doesn't just speak of Christ's first coming, but indeed not only of his first coming to die on the cross for our sins and be raised on the third day to bring us newness of life, but the follow-up to that, which is that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so we see all of that in that prophecy, in that prediction. But that was the message of John the Baptist. You can understand why, at a certain point, he may have lost hope of things changing in the world. Given his experience and that he was put to death for preaching the gospel and preaching the truth, you can understand why he may have come to the conclusion uh, you know, that he sent his disciples and they said to Jesus, are you the one that should come or should we wait for another? You, know, you understand that. That is where I think a lot of us can get to in today's world. And so this morning I want to offer you the hope of Scripture, the hope of Isaiah, but also the hope that God brings in judgment in Revelation chapter 16 and in verse 17. But before we do, let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we are grateful for hope. Hope is something that we have before we receive the promise. It's something that you give to us to sustain us in the darkness until we see the light. And when you come and you set things right, hope will turn into reality, and we won't need to have hope anymore, for we will have your presence and the fulfillment of all of our hopes. But Lord, until then, we need to be sustained by your spirit. We need to be strengthened and encouraged. We need to be, as Isaiah said, comforted as your people. We need to be comforted through your word and through the study of it. And even in a study of your judgment and your wrath being poured out on the earth, may we recognize that there's hope in that, for you are in control of all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at these seven bowl judgments, and indeed, they contain the seven plagues that are finally poured out on the world, we, we believe, at the end of a seven-year time period, which we call the Tribulation. And we've been looking at these, and last week we looked at the sixth bowl judgment, very interesting information. It set the stage for a final conflict that we'll actually talk about as we go forward in our studies. But that final conflict is, is referred to as Armageddon. And in it, we see the world sort of coming together to battle each other, to try to control the world, but also to vie for control of the world against God. We know the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We know that God is in control of all things, and he sits on the throne. But at the end of those seven years, the satanic world system will stand up and try to take control or assume they can take control from God of this world. And the God of this world, Satan, has been trying to do that forever. As far as we know, forever. It's just a long period of time of Satan attempting to do that. Uh, In the last days, he's going to seem to take control of this world culture. Today, you read the newspaper, you can come to the conclusion that he already has. Of course, he hasn't. But with the media and the world that we live in, it seems as if hope is lost. It seems as if there's really no point looking forward to better days because things are so bleak, but just not true. In fact, in judgment, God does a work of comfort. He brings hope. He brings a realization of our hopes and even our prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer for God to come in judgment to set things right. And so our hope is in Christ and specifically this morning, 
the hope that he will set things right. I want to read this section for you. This seventh angel, there were seven, and this is the final angel. The seventh angel is going to pour out this bowl. It's a symbol, it's a picture for us to understand God's judgment being poured out on the earth at this time in the future. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice. Now this would be the temple in heaven, which we've talked about. Out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. And that sounds vaguely familiar to something Christ said on the cross. It's not exactly the same language, but it's similar. It is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. And no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city, a reference to Jerusalem, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great. And gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. And from the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. These plagues represent God's judgment measured out in seven increments. And it finalizes the judgment of God being poured out on the earth when the seventh angel pours out his bowl and the plagues that are contained in it. We've had six of these. Now we get to the seventh, and it's truly the completion of the completion of God's judgment. For you see, there were seven seals that set the stage for God's judgment. Seven seals, similar judgments, but then you had seven trumpets, which trumpets sort of institute or implement judgment. God's judgment. But then the more severe completion of that judgment is when the bowls are poured out. So you have this this working towards over a period of seven years. See, there's a lot of sevens. Over a period of seven years, seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven bowls with seven plagues. The number seven in the scripture speaks of God's completion. He created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. So the concept of completion permeates this entire book, and it is indeed the completion of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. Now, as we've looked at this, and that's all we're going to look at today, because I really want to focus in on the hope we have, and you might be thinking, well, Pastor Tim, that doesn't sound very hopeful. That sounds like more bad news. Earthquakes, storms, judgment, hailstones of 100 pounds. How am I supposed to find comfort and hope in that message? Well, you can for a number of reasons. First of all, let me point out that the first thing in this section we learn is that John heard a loud voice from the throne and out of the temple in heaven saying, it is done. It is done. That's the way that Psalm 22 finishes, the very psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross when he began by quoting David's words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the psalm ends with, it is done, or it is finished. And that's how Christ finished his suffering on the cross. When he said in Greek, to telestai, or it is paid in full, it is done. The concept is the same. It is completed. Now, I like to complete things. I've learned that I have many strengths, but I have many weaknesses. One of the weaknesses I've noticed is if I start something, it can be a project, it can be a conversation, It it can be anything. If I start and I don't complete it, there's something within me 
that has a hard time resolving that. Now, there are many people that start many things and have many unfinished projects in their home. I'm not that person. I either start and finish or I don't. I started putting up a ceiling fan this week. And by the way, I've installed these before, but there's always something that causes you to be like, this bracket isn't going to work with this mount. Ah." And, you know, screws don't fit. Always little things that drive you crazy. You know, I allotted just enough time to install this fan. And, of course, something went wrong because something always goes wrong. And then I was very busy this weekend. So I'm going right home today. Not going out to eat. I want to go home. I want to finish this thing. And then I'm going to lay on the couch and feel very happy because it is done. But literally, from the moment I started the project till now, it's like a Rubik's Cube. I can't put it down in my brain. Maybe you're like that. And we think God should finish his judgment like now. I mean, you started this process. It's going to take seven years. Well, well, let's go back to the cross. You said it was finished. Why isn't it done? And there's a difference between it is finished and it is done. Our sins are paid for. God has saved us. It is finished. The suffering of Christ is finished and our salvation is secure. But when we talk about salvation, there's a salvation from sin and a deliverance or redemption of the world. And how in the world God could go 2,000 years without completing it is beyond me because I know how I am. And yet, how is it? God says, I'm compassionate, abounding in mercy, long-suffering. You see, here's the thing. He's so patient. Oh, I wish I was. He's so patient that he started this process before the foundations of the world, and it's going to be completed here as far as the judgment of God when the seventh bowl is poured out. But why is he waiting? He's waiting for you. He's been waiting for us to respond to the message of hope in the gospel. And then when he can bring judgment, it's because all those who will respond would have responded. See, it's his patience, it's his mercy, it's his his grace, his kindness that allows him to go from it is finished to it is done over a period of at least 2,000 years. See, I I have a problem with that. In my character, my nature, I don't understand. And that's why we read things like, God is not slow in in fulfilling his promise, Peter says, as some consider slowness. But he's merciful and he's compassionate, right? And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in that you see hope, you see mercy, you see grace. And so God is going to complete his judgment in this day, but our sins have already been paid for. And so when John the Baptist looks and he he says, make a a way in the desert, you know, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, I can understand why he said, well, listen, I know it's going to be finished. Why isn't it done yet? Hope gives us the ability to sustain faith in the midst of trials. Can I hear an amen? Hope gives us the ability to sustain faith in the midst of trials. It's hope that we need today more than ever. So I don't want to hear any of this negative talk. Oh, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope for America. There's no hope for us. There's no hope for New Jersey. There's no hope in this world. If you go around talking like that, you're, you're really defying God's word. You're really denying God's word. Because hope comes to us even and most especially in judgment. Okay, so it is done. That day will come. That day is not today, but it will. 
Because God's own voice echoes Christ's final victorious cry from the cross. If it was finished, it will be done. Amen? Now, remember, Jesus, when he cried out, he cried out on the cross, having satisfied the wrath of God that he endured for us. He took upon himself judgment. It is done has to do with the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. But the judgment that was poured out on Christ has been finished because he paid the price for our sins. You know what I found interesting? The word for plague in Greek in the scriptures. The word for plague. Remember, these are the seven bowls with the seven last plagues. Well, the word for plague is sometimes in the scriptures translated stripe or wound. A stripe or wound. So it's correct to say literally Christ took upon himself the plagues, the stripes, the wounds that we deserve. And at some point, those that reject Christ, who deny his sacrifice for their sins, who defy him, will have to receive the plagues that they chose to receive because they rejected Christ. He endured the plagues of God's wrath so that we would never have to. But those that reject the cross of Christ must suffer these plagues themselves. So it's your choice. You get to choose whether or not you Stand secure in Christ's judgment or pay, pay, payment, God's judgment upon Christ, him paying that price, or you reject that, and now you have this to look forward to. But still there's hope for us because in judgment comes restoration and redemption. So let's continue. It looks kind of scary. Severe storms, a severe and tremendous earthquake on the earth. We've seen this before in the book of Revelation. This is sort of anticipatory. This, this anticipates <clears throat> the judgment of God in his power, and yet it's a gathering storm. It's not an immediate storm. By the way, I'm going to remind you that in chapter 6, there was a great earthquake that happened on the earth when the sixth seal was, was open. Oh, by the way, in chapter 8, an angel throws a golden censer, And that caused severe storms and an earthquake on the earth. So there's a lot of earthquakes in the last days, which makes sense. What did Jesus say? There would be earthquakes. They would be increasing until the time of the end. We look at an increase in earthquakes now as a statistical uh, fact, and we say, well, see, the the end times are coming. Uh, Nothing like what's going to happen during those seven years. There had been in chapter 11 a severe earthquake in Jerusalem that destroyed a tenth of the city. And we were told that no earthquake like this earthquake that we're reading about today has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. No earthquake like it has ever occurred. So with all of the earthquakes we've seen in our lifetime that we know about historically and that will happen and we've read about in the book of Revelation leading up to this point, this earthquake tops them all. All of them. So can you imagine what kind of earthquake that will be. Oh, Pastor Tim, I thought you were going to talk about hope. How is there hope in an earthquake like that? Well, listen, there's hope in God's restoration. And you need to understand that the earthquake is like it says, I believe, in the book of Hebrews, where he shakes the shakeable so that the unshakable will remain. There is a shaking coming in our world. Maybe we're beginning to see some of those tremors, but at the end of the day, when God shakes it, he's going to shake out all of those who defy him and disobey him. Have you ever taken an area rug outside in the spring? You know, it's been all winter, and you go outside, you, you shake it, you just shake it out. That's what God is going to do with this world. 
You don't do that because you don't like the rug. You don't do that because you're trying to destroy the rug. You do that to restore it, to clean it, to make it right. God is going to shake out this world, and that's the hope we have in this world. We have a hope in Christ in heaven that's secure and eternal. I'm not even really talking about that hope today, although that's where we ultimately will find ourselves. The hope in this world is in Christ's judgment being poured out on the world. Hope in judgment? Yes. And that's why we talk about Christ coming, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, sending it to heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And then we follow that up with, and coming again to judge the living, and that's what we're seeing today, and the dead. We'll see that when we get to chapter 20. The living and the dead. So yes, I have hope in even the craziness that our culture is experiencing today. The seeming insanity that we're subjected to on every level, from education to politics and religion and within our culture, the mass confusion about the simplest of truths, all of it is a shaking that will ultimately lead us to this point where things will be set right. And aren't you waiting for that day? Do you have hope? Say amen. Amen. I do. So if I freak out over the way things are going, I'm losing sight of hope. That's what I'm doing. If I talk negative talk all the time, I'm losing sight of the end game, where we're going, what God is doing. I'm saying God doesn't know what he's doing, and I'm really distressed because I want things to be different. But that's not hope. That's a lack of hope. I know you come into a study in Revelation, and some of you guys really want to be depressed, and then there I go again and encourage you and offer you comfort and hope, right? What's wrong with this guy? There's hope in God's word even in judgment, especially in God's judgment. So this earthquake that's going to shake everything will greatly affect the geography of the entire planet. Now, we learn that the great city splits into three parts. The cities of the nations collapse. And, and you know, there's a part of me that looks at what's going on in our cities today and grieves and mourns. That the people in the cities, for whatever reason, seem to elect people who just destroy their cities. I don't live in a city. I live in a borough. But people who live in our major cities seem to pick the wrong leaders, and then they suffer for it, and then they complain. And I think to myself, at some point, you've got to get what you deserve. I mean, I don't want that to be the case, but the judgment that our cities are experiencing today, you would hope, would wake somebody up and know in Chicago and Philadelphia and Portland and San Francisco... You see them continue to tear their cities, once beautiful cities, tear them down piece by piece, brick by brick. Am I, am I supposed to... I can't fix that. God is giving them over to their sins so that they could reap the, the consequences so that maybe they'll wake up and cry out to God. They haven't done it yet. There's hope for the cities, but it requires repentance to receive and experience that hope. But in this day, that day will be over. The cities will collapse. I often think of those skylines in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Hong Kong, Singapore. I think of these massive places, just Shanghai. I look at these skylines and I think, oh my goodness, what a testimony to man's ingenuity and genius. In this moment, all raised to the ground. In this moment. It's as if God is saying, again, like the Tower of Babel, no, I'm taking it all down. We're going back to square one. Like me with that ceiling fan. I had it all set up and I was going to put it up and I realized, oh, this isn't going to work. I literally had to go back to the two wires hanging out of the ceiling. 
I had to raise it. I had to bring it all the way back to the beginning. And God has been speaking to me this week. Sometimes God has to do that to get things right. Going back to the beginning, going back to the place where things were the way they were supposed to be. In the beginning, we were in a garden. In, in the end, in the last chapters of Revelation, we're back in a garden again. But what does he have to do? He has to tear down all of man's defiant accomplishments to get us back to the place where he can make the earth the way it was originally set up and created. That's where we're heading. We start in Genesis and we end in Revelation and we essentially are in the exact same place in this world. A couple of things I see here. Jerusalem is spared. We're told it's split into three parts, but it's spared. But God destroys all the other cities of the world. Done. It is done. And we learn there in verse 19, we were told that God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, I just want to touch on this because literally the next two chapters in their entirety deal with Babylon the Great and what that means. I'll give you a little preview. You see, the angel proclaimed that Babylon the Great had fallen back in chapter 14, verse 8. We've already been told that. That was looking forward. Now, we learn this is the moment when it's destroyed. The world's religions will one day ultimately merge into like one global socioeconomic system. It is sometimes called the Great Reset. It's sometimes referred to as a number of different things. Globalism. The idea that mankind is ultimately building another Tower of Babel. That's the point. All coming together, like these cities, building these monuments to his achievements and his ingenuity in defiance of God. And God is going to say, no, it's done. And he's going to raise it to the ground. See, that's the hope we have. God has to destroy all that man has done in order to restore the earth to the way he originally created it. That's what judgment will bring. And so, Babylon the Great is the world system. Speaking of the the belief system, the culture, the pagan religions, all that defies God. The global socioeconomic system that benefits the few and and destroys the lives of the many. We'll learn more about this in future studies. But this Christ-rejecting religious system will be based in Rome. That's not a surprise. It'll be satanic, greed-ridden, and inhumane. Even more than the religious systems that abuse man and woman today. But Babylon, this system, will ultimately be destroyed interestingly enough, by one of the Antichrists, the coming world leader, and his kingdom. And why does that not surprise me? Because Satan is looking to destroy, to kill, to murder. He's a deceiver. And he will bring destruction on the earth, thinking, I'll destroy this earth, and it will belong to me. But the day is coming when God will destroy Satan's world, and the earth will truly be in the hands of those that love God. The meek shall inherit the earth. That's what we're looking forward to. But Babylon, this system that made the nations of the world drink the maddening wine of his kingdom, this system will be destroyed. By the way, the maddening wine, and it's not hard to imagine why it would be referred to as that, the maddening wine represents Babylon's wicked influence over the nations. Wine or alcohol has a tremendous influence over our actions. I'm sure you've realized this already. Those of you who have had struggles, like myself, with alcohol throughout their lives, 
know that the influence of alcohol is to reduce or minimize your inhibitions so you can oftentimes do the things that you wouldn't do otherwise or do them with a clear conscience or a, an affected conscience. It's to remove the conviction of the world so that you can just enjoy life until the headache comes, until the next day when you have to do it all over again. But the maddening wine is that influence, like an influence of alcohol, that the world system, the wicked world, has over this world. Look at the influence of the world system on people's lives today. Whether you're talking about forced vaccination or you're talking about convincing people that somehow a child in the womb is not life, or convincing people that there are more than two genders and that somehow it's something other than man and woman. That men are men and women are women seemed to be a, a solid fact until recently, but we just keep redefining everything. Why do we do that? It's in defiance of God. It's a Tower of Babel. Every time someone comes up with that, they're saying to God, I'm redefining your world in my own image or in Satan's image. So where's the hope, Pastor Tim? Where's the hope? Well, the hope is that that system's going to be destroyed. Can I hear an amen? I'm fine with that. I'm like actually okay with it if it happens like today. I'm fine with that entire system being brought to, the, to its knees and destroyed. In fact, the sooner the better. So that's my hope is that it's going to happen someday. My grandma used to say, she used to say to me, she called me Chip. She said, Chip, I may not live to see it, but you'll live to see it. I don't know if I'll live to see it. But it will happen. It will happen one day. And that is our hope. Amen? So, we learn about the maddening wine. That's the influence. <coughs> we also learn about the adulteries. Now, the adulteries. What is that a reference to? These are the wicked practices that Babylon will inflict upon the nations. Anytime the influence of the world convinces people to do things that are against God's word, that's an adultery. It's, it's if, as if you're... You know, you're in a marriage, right? And you step outside that marriage to fulfill your needs. Well, in a sense, we belong to God. And when we step outside of our relationship with God and his word and what it teaches us to have our needs met, it's an adultery. It's a fornication. It's, it's standing against God and his word. So that's what this world system does, even today. It influences people to do what? To do things that are wicked. Oh, well, I know no one here has a hard time imagining that because it happens every day in our world and seems to get worse and worse. But this is the long-awaited moment when God will destroy this global economic system. Oh, I can't wait. And I'm going to tell you why. Because it doesn't serve people. This system serves those in control of this system. You know, communism, and I'm no communist, but communism on its face was supposed to solve all of these problems, right? It was supposed to promise equality to all people, and it makes many people equally poor. It doesn't really solve the problem, but isn't it interesting that if communism and socialism is supposed to make everybody equal, why are some more equal than others, to quote George Orwell from Animal Farm? Why are some more equal than others? You see, that's because the system is corrupt. Oh, I remember when America was. No, America has always been a corrupt political system. The, the concepts, the ideals are very good. They were never perfect. They were always good ideals. 
given and supported and taught by men who were, in and of themselves, imperfect, some better than others. Now that system is supported and sustained by an entire global system that is corrupt. Oh, I thought we were supposed to have freedom of speech. We are in a corrupt system, so you can't expect that to be guaranteed anymore. I thought this was supposed to happen. I thought, yeah, in principle, yes. Why is it corrupt? Because it's a world system that's controlled by Satan. Oh, Pastor Tim, are you saying the United States is controlled by Satan? It's controlled by people who are controlled by Satan. How about that? Oh, there are some good people out there. I hope you'll vote for them. And, and when I look at the world we're in, anyone that voted for the clowns that are in control now, thanks for that, by the way. I didn't. But you can't do anything about it because God is in control and he's allowing these things to happen to bring us to a place where he has to scrap the whole thing. Do I have hope? Yes, it's in Christ. It's not in America, although I love my country and I love the principles that founded this nation. Many of them have been abandoned. And sadly today, we we really can't put much hope or stock in them. But what we can do is put our hope in God. Our hope is in Christ working through these systems to bring about his restoration and redemption of all mankind and the world in which we live. So yes, I have hope. Yes, I do. So, one of the things we're told here is that every island fled away. Sorry, Puerto Rico. Hawaii, that's kind of sad. But what if he made the whole world one giant Puerto Rico or Hawaii? Ah, That's a pretty good deal. I'll take it. But every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. What is that all about? You see, this earthquake was accomplishing more than just shaking. It seems to be setting things right. Remember back in chapter 6 that every mountain and island had already been removed from its place, but now we're told that the earthquake will radically alter the topography of the entire planet. I believe, and this is my suspicion, that God will level the earth and return it to its pre-flood state. I mean, if he's going to restore the earth and it was perfect when he created it, why wouldn't he bring it back to the state it was in when we messed it all up? Are you with me? Say amen. Yeah, it's going to be different. The world of the thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be different. I guess no mountain climbing, no island hopping. It's going to be different, but it's going to be better, a lot better. Not only the world system, but the planet itself. I believe another thing may be true, just a thought, it's a larger topic, but he may restore the Earth's original axis. As far as we can tell, between historical records and astronomical records, it seems that, again, this is a theory, it seems that the original axis of the Earth was very different before about 700 years before Christ, time of Hezekiah. You see, the original axis and rotation of the Earth sustained the earth in such a way that it had a 360-day solar year. Now think about it. Think about it just for a moment. The concept of 360 degrees of a circle predates this event. In Babylon, 360 degrees. And then this event takes place, and now we have a year that's 365 and kind of a quarter days. And it changed everything, and I've talked about this in studies in the Old Testament, but regardless of that, whatever God is going to create in that day is going to radically alter the state of our earth, even perhaps the way it rotates, 
the length of our calendar year. When you think about it, just, just if you're a numbers guy or a numbers girl, think about this with me. 360 degrees, right? 12 months, 30 days. It all works fine until something happens and it gets sort of off kilter. And as far as we can tell, something happened to alter the axis of the earth. And when it did, the earth changed a little. But it's going to change back to a place where we can see God's work in glorious perfection. Glorious perfection. Another thing happens, and it's not hard to imagine this, if drastic changes are happening on the earth. It's not hard to imagine this. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds fell on men. Now, whether these are from the atmosphere, uh, from the area around the earth, outside our, our earth's atmosphere, or they are simply the debris coming from volcanoes and earthquakes as the, as the earth essentially explodes. I don't know, but I can tell you what. That's pretty bad. You would have to agree. I often think, and I'm glad that we don't have like severe hail generally in our area, but I often think because I don't have a garage, that if hailstones the size of golf balls, which you sometimes hear about in places in our, in our country and throughout the world, were to pelt my car, I wouldn't be very happy. The way they build cars today, I think it would almost total it. But here's the thing. Can you imagine a 100-pound hailstone. One shot, done. Hits your house, over. Hits you, you're gone. I mean, this is severe, and that's the point. It's extremely severe. This is a severe judgment. 100-pound hailstones. This would radically transform the earth's surface. What is God doing? Is he destroying the planet he promised to save and restore? Or is the hope in the fact that this is the actual restoration of the earth? Oh, but it's going to take so much cataclysm and damage. So much cataclysm and damage has been done that to reverse what we exist in today, everything has to be leveled. Have you ever gutted a kitchen? I have. There's a lot of satisfaction in going right down to the walls or doing your bathroom, going right to the studs, because you can do everything all over again. You can see the wires and the plumbing in the wall. You can do it the way it should have been done. God is going to gut the earth. He's going to restore it. But, you know, if you're paying a guy to come to your house and gut your bathroom, when he guts it, you don't sit there and say, what have you done to my house? You look forward to when the walls go up and the plumbing is set up right and the electrical is renewed and and you think, oh, this bathroom is going to be great. You even take a picture of before and during and after because you're looking forward to God setting things right. Brothers and sisters, that's where we are today. And that's the hope we have. God is going to set it all right. You know, in the Bible, God has used hailstones before, specifically to judge his enemies. In fact, the Egyptians were judged with hail in Exodus 9. The Canaanites were judged with hailstones in Joshua 10. And when the Lord spoke to his own people through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 28, verse 2, he spoke to Israel, apostate Israel, rebellious Israel, as one who judges like a hailstorm. So the symbol of hail in the Bible is generally linked with judgment. Hail. Nobody likes this, but this is necessary for God to set things right. And so my hope is in the hail. No, my hope is in God who brings it. Well, you'll remember in Egypt, in Exodus chapter 9, there was a plague of hail. It's one of the plagues that came upon Egypt. And when going back to the seventh trumpet, which I mentioned, the seven trumpets implement 
uh, the judgment of God during the seven years of tribulation, the seven bowls or seven plagues completed. The seventh trumpet back in chapter 11 caused severe storms, an earthquake, and a hailstorm, just like the seventh bowl. There's a link between the two. And we've seen that in each of these different judgments. But what was the response? What was the reaction of people? What did they do with all of this information that they experienced and all the things I've just shared with you? What did they do with it? Look at the last verse. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So when things are terrible, do you curse God? Where is God? Why is God allowing this? Look at the world we live in. God has cursed us as a nation. These are the kinds of things we hear, even and especially from preachers. Has God cursed us? Has he? Or have we as a culture cursed God? You see, there's a difference. It's not God cursing us. We've cursed God. We curse God every time we say, no, I will not have him to rule over me. We curse God as a culture every time we allow corruption to continue and elect politicians who are just stealing money. We curse God every single time we support or silently accept the language of our culture, which would say that men aren't men and women aren't women, or that men can be women or women can be men, or that abortion isn't murder. Every time we allow that to continue, we're cursing God as a culture. God isn't cursing us. So what's the answer? God wants to bless us, but he's going to have to destroy this wicked world in order to do it properly. And that's the hope that I have, and I'm okay with that. It's going to be a painful process. It's likened unto contractions, birth pains in the scripture, which is always a very painful process, but it ultimately results in the birth of a precious child. That's where we're heading, folks. I hope that encourages you. Because to think that it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and then we all blow up and then we all die and ha, 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 ha. That's not God's heart. These people will curse God because of the plague of hell, because it's so terrible. And people will sometimes curse God because the world in which we live is terrible. It's a terrible place to live. Have you noticed? I've often thought, oh, I'd love to live at a different time. What, with the Middle Ages? So then I'm worried about cholera and plague and tuberculosis. We romanticize these time periods in our history. Oh, the Revolutionary War. Outside bathrooms? Is that what you want? Oh, I want to go back to the great generation, the the 40s and the 50s. World Wars, Korea, Vietnam. See, we romanticize our nation's history into thinking, oh, it was so much better to be alive in the 50s. Well, there are people here today who are alive in the 50s. I'm not one of them. I'm kind of glad to say that. No offense, but I was alive in the 60s. And that was no picnic. The 70s weren't. I remember. 70s were tough. 80s felt great, but in the end, they weren't all that great. 90s didn't get much better. Are you, are you seeing a trend? Oh, but they were great a few years ago when we had another president. Were they? Were they really that great? Because look where we are. You see, what I'm trying to instill in in you is a hope in Christ. And a hope in Christ in this world. Even in this world. But understand, he's going to gut it. He's going to tear it down to the studs. 
And I want to go back to some of what we talked about because, I mean, God in his grace and mercy was in the trumpet judgments hinting to a Christ-rejecting world that his wrath was coming, and still they cursed God. They, They didn't respond. He was pleading with them to consider their ways before it became too late and to receive his grace. But sadly, those that reject God simply don't want to repent. I want to go back as we close to the scripture we opened with, or that I opened our study with, that the Lord laid on my heart this morning, back in Isaiah, I can find my bookmark, back in Isaiah, I thought it was in there, I think it was Isaiah 40, right? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Isn't it interesting how now this sounds much more like a message of hope, right? That her sin has been paid for. That she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double blessing. Double portion. Blessing upon blessing instead of what we deserve. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. See, the Lord is on his way. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Why? So he can come and set things right. And then we read this. Every valley will be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. Or as the book of Revelation says, every mountain brought down and every island fled away. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places become a plain. And then we read this hope, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. Help us to see things properly. We can be so negative. Oh, my goodness, this world gets to us. I find myself being negative over the silliest of things, and yet we have this hope, this great hope, a hope that we share with the world, a hope that you've shared with us today. And we run around talking about how bad things are or how bad things will get when we should be looking to you and acknowledging that you've given us a hope, a hope in Jesus Christ. Not only that our sins have been paid for by his death on the cross, but the truth that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, to set things right, to restore this earth. And as your scripture says, we encourage one another with these words because forever we will be with the Lord. Lord, thank you for this message of hope and encouragement. I pray that you continue to encourage us through these studies in your word, in the book of Revelation, and always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.